I would like to invite you, please, to turn to the third chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be looking this morning at the first 20 verses of that chapter. To um, start us thinking, I'd like to read the first eight verses. What advantage, then, is there being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they were entrusted with the very words of God. But what if some of them did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is deserved. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning with uh, many distractions, many things on our mind, uh, divided attention, hearts that uh, are burdened, We ask that you'd center our thoughts this morning on this text, take away our, uh, the hardness that's in our heart, take away our biases, the things that keep us from listening to you and hearing what you have to say to us. Help us to hear you this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been making our way through this uh, letter for the last month in the first two chapters, as you've seen, Paul describes for us the human race. He sees uh, society and he sees us individually as God sees us. He divides the world into two parts, the irreligious people and the religious people. The irreligious uh, are those that live for uh, a can of Coors and hot cars. That's the uh, limit of their horizon. Paul would say if they were playing baseball, they bat in terms of morality .025. The religious person is the Bible-reading, church-going deacon or deaconess who uh, bats 2.250. They do a little bit better. But uh, neither are very impressive to God because he bats 1,000. That's the standard that God holds up before us. It's his holiness and his righteousness. And if we think we're going to impress God by our good behavior, we need to understand that he is unimpressed. When I lived in California, my boys all played Little League in the city where we we lived, Los Altos. And John Brody lived in that community. Some of you will remember Brody. He was the first quarterback for... the Stanford University football team, and then for the San Francisco 49ers. And his kids all played uh, on Little League teams that were in the same league as our boys, not the same team, but the same league. And since we all practiced on the same field, 
he was often there watching practices. And I remember one day, for some reason, Brian, my middle son, picked up a football and threw it to me, and we started tossing the football back and forth. And the thing that struck me is how awkward I felt throwing passes to my son with John Brody standing there. And it occurred to me that if I was going to impress John, it would not be through throwing perfect spirals. There would have to be another way. And this is the situation we're faced with. God throws perfect spirals. Uh, we throw wobbly passes. And God is singularly unimpressed. This is the point that Paul is trying to make uh, in these opening chapters of Romans. If we're trying to win our way into the heart of God by being good, then we're in big trouble. Now in chapter 3, he anticipates our response. This is Paul's method all the way through the book, as you know, to anticipate questions that might be raised. There are three in these verses that I read. The first is the question of advantage. What advantage, then, is, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Paul says there, the Jew has a great advantage because he's been exposed to truth. He's uh, heard the utterances from Sinai. He's been entrusted with the truth of God. He knows the word. Uh, he's like an individual who is a member of AAA. He gets lost like everyone else, but at least he knows where to go get a map and find his way home. That's the advantage of, of the Jew. As the psalmist put it, God has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this to no other nation. They do not know his laws. The Jew knew the truth. That's the point. That's the great advantage of being a religious person. Exposure to the truth. Now, this is the sort of question that perhaps you've asked from time to time. What was the advantage of being raised in a religious home? Many of you were raised in Christian homes and perhaps rejected the truth early on. What was the advantage of being in that situation, particularly if you had, to, had the, force, the, the truth forced on you or if you, you were in a very legalistic home where there were many rules, often extra-biblical rules, that you, uh, that you had to obey and, and they graded on you throughout your, uh, your childhood? I uh, have a friend who, when he, when he gives his testimony, tells, uh, says it like this, that when he was five, he went to Sunday school and cut out pictures of Adam and Eve. When he was ten, he went to Sunday school and, and cut out pictures of David and Goliath. And when he was fifteen, he cut out. <laughs> and uh, perhaps that's been your experience as well. I was raised in Schofield Memorial Church. There is no churchier church in the world. Uh, Dr. C.I. Schofield, who edited the Schofield Bible, was the founder of that church and the first pastor there. And the church was named for him. And I still, it was an, a very old building. It was built just before the turn of the century. Very dark building. Uh, wainscoted in, with, with oak paneling. And uh, they had hard wooden seats. Uh, bottom numbing hard wooden seats. <laughs> And uh, I can remember my, my little legs hanging off of the, uh, uh, the, the seat, and my feet would go to sleep. Not only my seat, but my feet were asleep by the end of the service. I, uh, I counted the tiles in the ceiling. I drew pictures on the envelopes. I was utterly bored to death. Uh, I'm sure it was not the fault of the pastor. It was just that the whole thing for me as a child was irrelevant. 
I remember the best thing that ever happened in church was one day when Dr. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, who's the founder of Dallas Seminary, came to speak, and he was pounding on the pulpit, and the pulpit had a, had a crenellated front. There were little wooden blocks inset into the pulpit, about four inches square, and he hit the pulpit with his fist, and one of those blocks fell out of the pulpit and landed on the communion table and dropped on my feet, and I got a serious case of the giggles. I couldn't stop laughing. It was the best thing that ever happened in church. I could hardly wait to go back to see if it would happen, happen again. That was my... Uh, my experience. But you know what? Truth got through to me. As a teenager, I would come home many nights, regardless of what I'd done during the day, and I had to get out the Bible and read it before I went to bed. I, uh, until I was 17, I thought God uh, spoke in Elizabethan language, I, uh, English. I, uh, I had memorized everything out of the King James, and it kept coming back to me whenever I was tempted uh, to to do something wrong, or whenever I did something wrong, I would hear God speaking to me in King James English about what I was doing. I couldn't get away from the truth. And that's what Paul is telling us in this, this, this passage. What advantage is there in, in being a religious person? Exposure, exposure to the truth. It may not, it may, we may not have believed it, but we couldn't get away from it. Now, there's a second uh, question that might be raised. It's the question of hypocrisy. Verse 3, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right in your words and prevail uh, in your judgment. Uh, I think what Paul is saying here is that there are some who don't believe it. They have the truth. But they don't act on the truth. Paul says, nevertheless, even if you're raised in that environment, you know the truth. That's the odd thing. Hypocrisy does not neutralize the truth. We know it. And we would like to shift the blame to someone else. We, we, we would like to be able to stand before God and say, because I was raised in the wrong sort of setting, because I was around hypocrites, because there were church-going people who were crooked and unjust and unkind, in, in, in my community, therefore the truth didn't get through to me. But, but Paul says that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. Because even though there are people around us who misrepresent the truth, even though there are people around us who do not act according to the truth, the truth still gets through. That's his argument. We know it's true. I hear people say that this Baker thing, the... Jim and Tammy Baker debacle somehow has undone the gospel in the eyes of people in our community. I don't believe it for a minute. The interesting thing is that, that even people who don't consider themselves Christians know that the Bakers are not acting in a Christian manner. They know. And so Paul says that argument doesn't hold up. When we stand before God, we cannot shift the blame to someone else. Even if we were raised in the wrong environment, uh, there are hypocrites all around us. Nevertheless, Paul says, we know, we know. The third argument we raise uh, has to do with God's character. I, I, I love this uh, way of, that Paul has of answering these objections because he answers all of my objections as I raise them. My philosophy is uh, if they persecute me in some rationalization, I flee to another. And that's what this person is doing. 
If our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Paul has to apologize. The argument's so, so silly. He has to apologize. I'm using a human argument. You understand what he's saying? Some will stand before God and say, My evil makes God look good. The argument is so specious, Paul hardly bothers to answer it. Actually, he doesn't get around to answering it fully until chapter 6. He points out later in this paragraph that it's like it's saying the end justifies the means, that I can do evil so that good may come of it. It would be like a, a, a plea that we would make before a court, before a human court. We're caught speeding and we're, we're brought into court and we say, well, the reason I did it is because I wanted to show the mercy of the American justice system. I wanted to show people how gracious and merciful you are. Therefore, I know you'll forgive me because that will show how much mercy is built into our system. And this argument strikes me as the last refuge of us scoundrels who were grasping at straws. But that doesn't hold up either. Paul says their, their condemnation is just. Now, he's dealt with all of our objections, and he's come to the conclusion that we're all guilty. Verse 9. What shall we conclude? So this is Paul's conclusion to the argument up to this point. Some people never come to a conclusion. Paul does. He wraps up his argument. What shall we conclude? Are we Jews, we religious people, any better than they? That is the non-religious, the irreligious, those that never darken the door of a church. Not at all, Paul says. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. It's an inescapable fact. It's a factor that has to be reckoned with that we are all sinful. Can't get away from it. It's a fault that runs right through society. Carolyn was just recently in California. She was there when the second shock occurred. She was up in San Francisco, so she didn't feel it, but the people down south did. And I, it reminded me when, uh, of, a, of a time when a friend of mine was trying to put in some multi-engine hours in an airplane, and I just flew with him up and down the peninsula. We flew up and down the San Andreas Fault. You could see the dip where the fault occurs. You could see the different types of, of uh, uh, terrain on both sides the, the, where there's been slippage. Uh, the fault is easily discerned, and, and it's striking to see buildings built right across the fault. There's one place where there's a shed, a drying shed, and, and the, the, the ridge of the roof has been offset about two or three feet by the fault. You can see it as you look down upon it fault is there. You can't do anything about it. One of these days it's going to break loose. That's what Paul is saying. There's a fault that runs right through society. There's a factor that has to be reckoned with. Every time we look at society, every time we try to do something about society's problems, every time we try to face our own problems, we have to reckon with the fact that the fault exists. There's a fatal flaw that runs right through every person. We can't get away from it. It's unavoidable. And that's why Paul says we're all under sin. That's a forgotten factor. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago Carl Menninger's book, Whatever Became of Sin. He points out in that book that, uh, that sin has, is no longer the providence of the priest. 
Uh, it used to be the priests that dealt with sin because everyone realized that sin was a moral problem, it was a spiritual problem. Now sin has been put in the hands of the police because it's a civil problem, it's a legal problem. And the argument is, therefore, anything that is not illegal is moral. So I could do anything I want to as long as it's not illegal. This is Carl Menninger saying these things, not, not an evangelical Christian. And then sin was taken out of the providence of police, of the police, and it was placed in the hands of the psychiatrist. And sin then became something for which we are not responsible. We are no longer responsible for our sins. It is a sickness like cancer or some other disease. And so we have tried effectively to do away with sin. But what Paul tells us is we cannot do away with it. We are all under sin. Some of you may have seen the article in the Statesman last week commenting on Ted Koppel's uh, speech at Duke University. Let me quote, We have actually convinced ourselves, he said, that slogans will save us. Shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you wish, but wear a condom. No, the answer is no, not because it isn't cool, or smart, or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but because it's wrong. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a howling reproach. What Moses brought back from Mount Sinai were not ten suggestions. He's right. He's right. We try to justify it. We try to defend it. We try to protect ourselves. We try to hide behind our objections and facades. And Paul says it doesn't work. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't make a difference whether you're a religious, church-going, Bible-reading person or someone who cares nothing at all for God or for the church. God is unimpressed with our righteousness. We stand condemned before a holy, righteous, indignant God. And we have to face the fact that we're guilty. Now Paul goes on in verse 10. It gets worse before it gets better. As it is written. And then he proceeds to quote the law back to them. Remember he said that the law speaks to those that are under the law. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to us. Those of us that know the Bible. So he quotes the Bible to us. That's the final authority. See that's the advantage that the Jew had. That's the advantage that a religious person has. They have truth. Objective truth. Some, I don't know if any of you saw uh, my sister Sam last night. Very interesting segment. Uh, they were wrestling with the problem of, of whether the 16-year-old girl ought to go to bed with her boyfriend. And there was simply no answer other than she was too young. And the question really became, you know, how old do you have to be to go to bed with your boyfriend? There's absolutely no moral base. I just felt, you know, I, my heart just ached. For people in that situation, because they do not know what's right. They're grasping at straws. But Paul says, you Jews, you religious people, you know, you know. And then he proceeds to quote from the book of Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and other places. He, he does what the rabbis at that time did. They call this a string of pearls. They would string together one verse after another to make, to make a point. That's what Paul is doing. Paul says, there is no one righteous. No one righteous. And in case somebody uh, in his congregation or among his readers uh, say, well, uh, what about me? Paul says, not even you. <laughs> he gets us all. There's no one righteous. No, not one. 
There is no one who understands. No one who really seeks after God. He said early that some seek after God, but he uses a different verb here. He intensifies the verb. Oh, there are some that, uh, you know, they, they've got something of a quest for God going, but no one really seeks for God. No one wants him. No one understands. They don't care. There is not one righteous. You see, God, if we evaluate ourselves by God's standard, we, we all fall short of the glory of God. He is right. That's what righteousness is. It is rightness. If we're thinking of a compass, God always points due north. You and I, uh, you know, our, our needle may swing 180 degrees and, and we may be going due south. Others of us may be going north, northeast or north, northwest. But Paul's point is that no one is going due north. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does, does good. Not even one. Paul, are you saying that no one in this world does what is good? I think what Paul is saying is that no one habitually or exclusively does what is good. There, there may be occasional things that, you know, we may do occasional uh, worthwhile things and good things, but even our best actions are tinged with evil. Let me read something to you that Malcolm Muggeridge said. It is precisely when you consider the best in man that you see that there is in each one of us a hard core of pride or self-centeredness that corrupts our best achievements and blights our best experiences. It comes out in all sorts of ways, in the jealousy which spoils our friendships, in the vanity we feel when we've done something pretty good, in the easy conversion of love into lust, in the meanness that lets us depreciate the efforts of other people, in the distortion of our own judgment by our own self-interest, in our fondness for flattery and our resentment for blame, in our self-assertive profession of fine ideals which we never begin to practice. That's very good. That's the problem. That's why Paul says we're in trouble. That's why our deeds are worthless. He says there's no one who does, does good. Now, if you notice in looking down through this, uh, this string of pearls, he really says two things in this passage. In verses uh, 10b through 12, he indicts all of us. He says that sin has touched us extensively. We're all affected by it. Everyone in the world. No one is untouched. You see what he's saying? No one, no one, no one. All together, no one. Not even one. We are sinful in our origins. We come into the world sinful. The human race is blighted. That's what Paul is saying. Now, this is what theologians call original sin. They are not saying that we sin in any original ways. We don't. You know, we, we, we sin like the Amines and the Borges and, and the Hitlers. And, you know, there's nothing very original about our sin. What he's saying is that we're sinful in our origins. We come into the world like a baseball with a spin on it. And sooner or later, it breaks. And it always breaks away from God. No one. You see, he indicts us all. Then what he does in the verses that follow from 13 through 18 
is show that sin strikes us intensively. Not only are all of us touched by sin, but every part of every individual is touched by sin. This is what theologians call total depravity. That's an ugly term. We don't like to hear that. But what they mean is that we are depraved in the totality of our being. If sin were blue, we would be some shade of blue all over. That's what he's saying. Because notice how he does this. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths, their feet, their ways. He's talking about the parts of our body and the activities of our lives. Not only are we all painted with the same brush, we're painted up and down. And we can't get away from it. Our throats, he says, are open graves. They're corrupt. That's why corruption comes out of our mouths. Every time we open our mouths, it's as though someone has opened a grave. All the garbage, all the corruption comes out. Why do we have this uh, fascination with four-letter words, bathroom talk, and sexual innuendo? Why? And blasphemy against God. So you can hardly hear, you can hardly express yourself anymore without the use of blasphemous terms or bathroom talk. Are sexual phrases used out of context? Well, all that is is a manifestation of the heart. That's all it is. Paul says, the mouth, or Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. And every time we open our mouths, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we hit our thumbs with a hammer, out comes the garbage. That's what Paul is saying. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. I happened upon a, an application the other day that someone I know had turned in for a job, and I just happened to scan through the application, and the thing was full of lies. They were believable lies. Nevertheless, they were lies. I was in a classroom recently where they were discussing moral issues, and the issue came up of cancer. If you've had cancer before, you're going to put that on your application. They discussed that at length. Finally, the teacher said, they, they cornered the teacher and said, what, what would you say? I wouldn't put it on there. If the question is asked, I would lie, he said. Because a lie is acceptable if it's believable. Their thrones, their, their, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. They kill people. They paralyze people with their poison. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark mark their ways. They, they fragment society. They leave misery and heartache and pain behind. And the way of peace, they do not go. The search for peace goes on unabated. They can't get no satisfaction, as the Rolling Stones say, said. They don't know the way of peace. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They have no healthy respect for God. They are careless. Uh, I have a, a lot of friends that fly, and I find that some of them have a very healthy respect for danger. Those are the guys I like to fly with. They're careful. I have other friends who really have no healthy respect for the dangers that, that, that come from flying. These are the guys that just jump in the plane and crank it up, you know, and away they go. 
I like the guys that walk around their planes, examine everything, check them out, you know, see that they've got gas in the tank. Those are the guys I like to fly with. The other guys scare me because they have, they have no fear of flying. And that's the problem. We have no fear of God. We don't respect Him. We have no healthy regard for Him. And we're careless. Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, he's talking about the laws. He spelled it out before, the verses from Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, in verses 10 through 18. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That's those of us that are religious, those of us that are here in church this morning, those of us that are listening to the Scriptures. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable, guilty, before God. In other words, if, if we have to be approved before God on the basis of our goodness, we don't have a leg to stand on. We are guilty. We have to live by the light we have. Those of us that are religious have more light than those that are irreligious. We've heard the word of God spoken to us. And we stand condemned before God because we have not lived up to the truth that we have. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, if, if we have to be approved before God on the basis of our goodness, we don't have a leg to stand on. We are guilty. We have to live by the light we have. Those of us that are religious have more light than those that are irreligious. We've heard the word of God spoken to us. And we stand condemned before God because we have not lived up to the truth that we have. That's what Paul is saying. Furthermore, he says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight or in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And he introduces an idea that he's going to develop uh, uh, later in, in the book of Romans, the point is that the law was never given to save us. God never expected Israel to keep the law and get into his heart as a result. He knew they couldn't keep the law. They thought they could. They came to Sinai. They said, you know, give us the law. Give us the, the Ten Commandments. And, and so God did. And while he was giving the law on the mountain, Israel was down at the base of the mountain breaking the law. That follows uh, the, the Exodus 20, the story of the giving of the law at Sinai, follows the story of, uh, uh, follows Moses' eagle wing speech, as they call it, in, verse, in chapter 19, where, where Moses reminds Israel that, that when they were taking their first steps in statehood, when they came across the, the Red Sea, and they, they began to develop as a nation, that, that God bore them up on wings uh, like an eagle. You know, a mother eagle teaches her eaglets to fly by putting them on her back and and dumping them off, letting them flap, and then she swoops under and picks them up. It's a picture of grace. Moses, that's the way God dealt with you in grace. Moses said, we don't want this anymore. We want some laws. God said, all right, we'll give them to you. The purpose of the law was to indict and condemn and drive people back to grace. It's the wrong tool for saving us. My, my father was a fanatic about his tools. He had a little spot painted on one of these pegboards. And he had a little spot painted for every tool. You look at my garage, you'll see it didn't wear off. But my tools were scattered all over the place. His were in, in the right place. And he would always get on me if I used the wrong tool for a job. 
if he used a screwdriver to pry something. That that upset him. He'd always say there's the right tool for that job. You see, that's what Paul is saying. The law is the wrong tool to save you. It'll never work. Only condemns. All it can do is drive us to grace. So our conclusion is this. If we're basing our relationship with God on our efforts... We will never get to know God. We have to live up to the light we have and never slip, not even once. See, that that, that spells trouble for us. That that means that even if we decided today we were never going to sin again, what are we going to do about the sin in the past? What Paul is saying is that we have not, we will not, we cannot keep the law. And that's what drives us to grace. You see, salvation is given to us the old-fashioned way. You don't have to earn it. You have to receive it. That's what Paul wants us to know. We are locked into grace. I want to I conclude with what I think is a very corny illustration, but it just strikes me that it, that it drives home the point that Paul is trying to make. Uh, I would have to say with Paul, this is a human argument. Okay? I want you to imagine, if, if, if you will, um, the, the, the whole world traveling on a ship from the United States to Europe, the world's small enough to fit on a ship, making your way through the North Atlantic, strike an iceberg, ship begins to go down, everyone leaps into the water, you're on your own. You're hundreds of miles from the coast of Europe. There happen to be on board some triathletes who start to swim. And uh, they swim 10 miles, 15 miles, 20 miles, they sink. There also happen to be some elderly men and women on board who cannot swim at all, and they go down. Now imagine there's an idolater on the ship. He's cast into the water, but he has his idol. The only problem is that his idol is cast out of gold, and it takes him to the bottom. There's another man on board ship who's a humanist, and he starts grabbing for people. <laughs> he, start, he, he tries to find someone who could swim a little better than he. And they hang on to each other for a few miles, and then they all go down. And then there's an existentialist who jumps into the water, and he goes down immediately, but he goes down raging at his fate. And then there's a Jew who has his Torah. He's carrying it. Pretty soon it becomes waterlogged, and it takes him down. And then there is the fundamentalist, church-going Christian who was teethed on the Schofield Bible, who uh, knows all of its notes, and is counting on his knowledge of the Schofield Bible to gain acceptance before God. Uh, His Bible becomes water-soaked, too, and he goes down. And you're out there treading water. You know it's impossible for you to swim to shore, but you set out anyway because you're tough, because you're strong, because you're proud. And along comes Jesus in a lifeboat. And he strokes right along beside you, and he reaches out to you. He will not force you to get into his boat, but he reaches out to you, and he says, will you please climb into my boat? You'll never make it on your own. 
And He will continue to stroke with you until you drown. So, we're so proud. We're so tough. It's so hard to admit that we need grace. Some never do. And someday they will face the judgment of God. But some of us have found grace. May I say again, that's the only answer. That's what Paul is leading us up to. All this bad news comes at us. So we will face the fact that we cannot make it. If we're trying to make it on the basis of good works, we have not done enough good works. We will not do enough good works. We are shut up to the grace of God. We stand before Him as guilty and condemned before a holy, righteous, outraged God. He's outraged at our sin. The only answer is to say, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's the only answer. It's the only way out. As Paul puts it, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Shall we pray? For those of us that know grace, this is such a, such a good reminder. We're going to hear this note sounded all the way through the book of Romans. We're saved by grace. We grow by grace. It is by grace that we are going to be ushered into God's presence. It is by grace that we will live eternally with Him. We do not deserve it, but we need it. We need to thank Him for it. Will you, from the depths of your heart, thank Him that He brought you into His boat? If you're here this morning and you're still thinking that there's something in you that's commendable, you're thinking that when you stand before God, He will say, yes, there are 99 things that you did wrong, but there's that one thing that you did. And I appreciate that. I'm impressed with that. I'm going to let you in. I'm going to waive the law. I hope what you've seen through our study of Romans is that that is not possible. God cannot do that. He's a holy and righteous God. He's the moral governor of the universe. He cannot let us in except in the person of his son. All you have to do is be in Christ. And all you have to do to be in Christ is to tell him that you want to be accepted in the beloved. Just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking my sins. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me new life. Just tell him that. That's all you need to do. And then he will begin to do a good work in you. He says he will. He'll begin to change you. doesn't mean that life will be easy. There will be struggle. There will be pain. There will be hurt. But you'll grow. You'll get to know him more and better and love him more. And you'll begin to be more of the kind of person that that you've always wanted to be. Well, Father, teach us to fear you. Teach us what we are truly like. Help us to see ourselves as Paul sees us and as you see us. 
Forgive us, Lord, of our sin. Thank you for that forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.